Welcome to Above Avalon. This is episode 106, Getting Ready for Steve Jobs Theater. Hi, I'm Neil. We are only a few days away from Apple hosting its largest product event in years. You would have to go back to the Apple Watch event, September 2014, at the Flint Center to see an event that had so much anticipation leading up to it as this event that's coming up. I will be flying out to Cupertino to attend the event, so this is also going to be the first time that I see Apple Park, which adds a whole other dimension to it. In today's episode, we're going to talk about this upcoming product event, but we're going to do it in a slightly different way. Instead of focusing on the details and going over all of my estimates and assumptions and predictions for what Apple may announce or may not announce, there's a time and place for that we'll talk about at the end of the episode, we're going to look at the big picture. And there's a very simple reason. I think you need to look at the big picture to properly add the context needed to analyze all of this Apple news. So if we have Apple coming out with a higher-priced, larger-screen iPhone, well, what does that mean? How does that fit within the broader smartphone market? If we have Apple coming out with a cellular Apple Watch, how does that fit within the larger wearables market. The same can even be said if Apple introduces, or what I would say properly introduces, HomePod. How does that fit within the smart home market? So what we're going to do in today's episode is look at the major tech trends in each one of these segments. Smartphones, wearables, television, and the home. And I think that's going to give us the much-needed context to analyze Apple's first event, Steve Jobs Theater. The best place to begin is, well, with the smartphone. Apple is expected to announce at least three new iPhones at the same time next week. That's never been done before. It's a very big deal. Now, when you look at the smartphone market, on the surface, the battle seems to be largely settled. You don't see as many reports anymore pinning Apple versus Google, iOS versus Android. If anything, maybe WeChat is the new company that everyone seems to be pointing at as Apple's arch nemesis. Well, as we talked about last week, I don't really think that's true. However, if you go beyond this, what I would call facade of relative calm in the smartphone market, I actually think there's still quite a bit of change taking place. The smartphone market continues to evolve at a very rapid pace. There are three major trends currently unfolding in the smartphone market regarding how consumers view smartphones. I will list the three themes and then we'll go back and go over each in a little bit more detail. So the first, larger screens continue to gain momentum. Number two, form factor size is hitting a ceiling. And the third, the pricing gap is widening. So when you look at how we are using smartphones, an increasing amount of content is being consumed on these pieces of glass. And what this is causing is that both consumers and manufacturers, they're getting behind larger screens. If we go back a few years, especially in the U.S. or maybe some countries in Europe, and you look at this phenomenon of larger screen smartphones, 
In a way, they were deemed excessive and niche. You had Samsung coming out with something like five, six-inch screens, and people were looking and saying, well, you can't use that with one hand. I'm not sure if that's really what people want. However, if you now look at the current smartphone market, smartphones of five-inch and six-inch screens are seeing the sales momentum. And this large-screen smartphone trend, it's not just to one country. It's not just for one geography. In a way, it's occurring across the world. It's even occurring across price categories, both at the high end and the low end of the smartphone market. Now, there still is some evidence that a portion of the smartphone market wants smaller screens. We can look at maybe iPhone SE sales as a sign of that. So some people are okay using a four-inch screen. Granted, they may be attracted to that model because of a lower price. But I think over time, that particular segment, it's probably going to contract and not expand. Now, the newest development that's occurring in the smartphone market has to do with the relationship between smartphone screen size and form factor. It's one thing for people to desire larger smartphone screens. But up to now, there's been a limitation. There's been a type of ceiling to that trend. And it comes to form factor. If you go larger in screen size, it's going to get to the point where you start to lose value in terms of mobility. And it becomes much harder to fit that phone in your front-facing pocket, a book bag, a purse, a pouch. This is one reason why when you look at something like the iPhone 7 Plus, which is the model that I use, I have it in hand right now, I'm okay with sometimes needing to use two hands to use the phone. It's actually primarily how I use it quite a bit. But what I'm not okay with is a phone that's really that much larger than this. Because as it is, I can just about fit this in, say, a jeans pocket. I don't think I would want to go a little bit bigger, though. If that would happen, maybe it becomes a little bit less practical. It loses some of its functionality. And so what this did was it introduced a theory that, well, up to now, if you look at the iPhone line, the big trend was moving from, say, 4-inch screens and even smaller to 4.7 and 5.5. But you're probably not going to see this similar type of upgrade or the similar trend going forward. There's not going to be a second wave of even larger screens, even larger iPhones. But something changed. So if you're looking at your iPhone, well, what if you remove that front-facing bezel at the top of the screen? and at the bottom of the screen. So I use the product red iPhone, and I have that white front-facing bezel. What if you remove that? In the process, you remove that home button as well. What that's going to do is allow you to put a larger screen in pretty much the same form factor. Or vice versa, what you can do is take the iPhone 7 Plus screen and fit it in a smaller form factor. There have been smartphone manufacturers that have been pursuing this trend. We now have Samsung going down this road, and we're going to have Apple buy into this trend. The big thing about this 
is that by removing that front-facing bezel and dedicated home button, you're eliminating what had been the major limitation of using larger screens, and that was form factor size. So now we're going to have smartphone manufacturers being able to ship larger screens without increasing form factors. The OLED iPhone that Apple is expected to introduce next week is rumored to include a 5.8-inch screen. So that's larger than the screen found in the iPhone Plus. But the overall device is going to be roughly the same form factor as an iPhone 7. That's a very big deal. This is going to have a major implication, a major impact on how consumers think about smartphone size preference. I think it is inevitable that all iPhones will eventually contain this design language, the no home button, no front bezel. If you're looking out over the next couple years, I think large swaths of the iPhone user base are going to want to upgrade to these new iPhone models. It is the type of multi-year upgrade cycle that PC makers hope would occur in the laptop market. But such a cycle never materialized. Now this introduces another element, brings us to the third major theme. With smartphone manufacturers increasingly betting on camera and screen innovation to stand out from the competition, what that's done is increase smartphone pricing. Look at the Galaxy Note 8 from Samsung. It's going for $950. Even the Samsung Galaxy S8, it's going for $750. So at the high end of the market, smartphone prices are increasing. However, there continues to be a significant portion of this market that wants price accessibility. So I think it's going to be very important for smartphone manufacturers, including Apple, to balance higher-priced smartphone SKUs containing the latest technology on one end and then have lower-priced SKUs that still can offer premium experience on the other end. The amazing thing about this discussion is that with the smartphone, we are talking about a product that is still evolving in terms of the role it's playing in our life. This is the primary reason why smartphones are not like laptops and desktops. What were once just computers that fit in our pocket are going to morph. This is why I think smartphones are eventually going to be considered something like augmented reality personal navigators. Your smartphone camera is going to be like a pair of smart eyes. It's going to help you navigate the world around you. And that's what's so remarkable about the smartphone market. You have this ongoing change, even though on the surface, it may seem like things are pretty much settled. They're figured out. Not quite. Turning to the wearables market. This is one that I'm very interested in. We talk a lot about wearables and Apple Watch. The wearables market has had a rocky start. There is no question about it. When you look at all of the players that were running into this market, they were sprinting into wrist wearables. Some of those initial players, they've completely gone out of the space. Just took a couple years. They're gone. Others are taking a more cautious view. There's only a handful of companies who are seeing wearables sales success. 
I think regardless of who you look at, there's been significant strategy changes over the years. That includes Apple. So when we look at the overall wearable space, I think there are three major trends. The first, sales momentum is flowing to smartwatches. Two, fashion and luxury continue to gain importance. And the third trend, the wearables battle is slowly expanding beyond the wrist. One topic that I cover pretty closely is monitoring the wearables market. And it's been a very clear trend over the past, I would say, nine months or so. Dedicated fitness trackers have lost all momentum while Apple Watch continues to outperform sales expectations. What's happening here is that fitness and health tracking, it's moving from being a product to a feature. Just look at the difference in sales between Fitbit and Apple Watch over the past year. Over at AboveAvalon.com, in the latest article, Major Tech Trends Ahead of Apple's Big Event, I have this in Exhibit 1. I graph Fitbit sales from the second quarter of 2015 on a quarterly basis, and then compare it to Apple Watch sales. And the Apple Watch sales are my estimates. And it's very clear. When you look at the holiday quarter starting in 2016 and go through the first half of 2017, the sales gap between Fitbit and Apple Watch has essentially closed. It was completely different in the early part of 2016 and 2015. Look at what Fitbit's doing. They're coming out with a genuine smartwatch. That is a bet-the-company type of move. It's meant to capitalize on what is happening in the wrist wearables landscape. You look at Garmin. They're seeing very similar trends here. Momentum is flowing from the dedicated fitness and health trackers to smartwatch offerings. Why is this happening? What is going on? I think people are placing value in multi-purpose wrist wearables. This is why I think health and fitness tracking is moving from a product to just a feature. While a lot of people like Apple Watch for that health and fitness tracking, it's just a feature. You can use Apple Watch for so many other things. I think we're only seeing the initial fallout from this development. One of the things that Apple got really right with the Apple Watch were the watch bands. And more importantly, the interchangeable dynamic found with the watch bands. I have about three or four different watch band options. And I actually do find myself switching them out throughout the day. Depending on where I'm going, I may use a sport band. I may use a woven nylon band. I may use uh, the Nike sport band. I think at first there were questions as to whether people would actually do this. Is this more of a gimmick? Are people really going to buy five or six watch bands? And I think, well, in only just two years, if people are already sort of embracing watch bands like this, I can only imagine going forward how this is going to trend. I think watch bands are a very big deal. The thing, though, that caught my attention is that this dynamic of changing out watch bands and really having it be so easy that it's not a chore, it's not something that you dread, it's now viewed as natural. It's almost inevitable when talking about smartwatches. So if a company is entering a smartwatch space, you're kind of assuming, well, they have to do this. And I think this has to do with how 
fashion and luxury, they continue to play a very big role with wearables. I've seen a lot of people, they look at Apple Watch and the changing edition strategy. So you had Apple selling gold Apple Watches for $10,000 and higher. And they saw Apple stop that and say, well, they got the fashion wrong. They got the luxury aspect wrong. Apple Watch actually doesn't play that much in luxury and fashion. And I disagree. I think Apple Watch is almost all about fashion and luxury. It's the reason why I change out watch bands. You could have the greatest technology, but if people don't want to wear it on their wrist, we have a problem. So I think going forward, technology companies are going to continue to face a lot of pressure here. Because as consumers demand luxury and fashion items, well, that's their weakness. They're not going to be able to offer such an experience to consumers. In terms of the broader wearable space, I think the battle is evolving a little bit. It's moving beyond the wrist, and the ear is shaping up to be the second major wearable's background. If we look out over this upcoming holiday season, you're going to have Apple, Samsung, Fitbit, and a number of smaller hardware companies, a number of startups, offering some form of wireless or cordless headphone offerings. We're in the early stages here. There's no question about it. But you could see how companies, they sense some opportunity here. At this point, Apple is the clear leader. You have them shipping W1 chips and AirPods and Beats. There's really no one close to Apple. Could that change going forward? Maybe. It's something to monitor. However, what I think is more important here is if you take Apple's success with, say, wireless AirPods and combine it with Apple Watch, Apple has the most formidable wearables platform. Along those lines, I don't think there is a second place that's close. Not yet, at least. We are moving to a point where the wearables narrative, it's going to evolve. We're no longer going to be just talking about wrist devices. Instead, we're going to be focused on platforms. And these platforms are going to consist of a number of hardware and software solutions for different parts of the body. Turning to the third product segment, television. This one has been interesting. It's been a fun one to monitor, especially over the past year. When looking at the television market, there has been a lot of unknown here. But I do think that we're starting to get a glimpse of television's future. The large cable bundle, it's over. It, 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 the days are numbered. It's not going to be in a year or two, but you're going to see a gradual decline. I think it's, at this point, it's going to happen. Instead, you have new players on the scene. I like to call these maybe the new power brokers in the TV space. Netflix, Amazon, Facebook, Google, Apple. And there's a long list of people who are just about maybe possibly getting on that list, but still not quite yet, like Disney, HBO, Hulu. Again, the list goes on. Netflix. Amazon, these are the newest TV networks. Massive budgets for funding scripted video content. I think people just, it's very difficult to get your hands around what these two companies are doing to the television space. 
you're going to get to the point where they each have $10 billion budgets per year for content. I mean, it, it, that's unimaginable just a couple years ago. YouTube, Facebook, that's where people are consuming ad-supportive video content. My YouTube usage is certainly increasing year over year, whereas the amount of scripted content that I'm consuming is going down year over year. And then you have Apple. Well, how do they fit into all of this? Apple is just now starting to get into original content. So do they really have influence there? Well, Apple owns the most lucrative platform for consumers to access these paid video subscriptions. This is one reason why management has become much more vocal in talking about the number of paid subscriptions across all of its services, which includes the App Store. The major themes unfolding in the TV space include price playing a major role in the streaming set-top box market, momentum being found with smaller screens, and new content players holding optionality. When you look at the set-top box market, there's been a lot of discussion how Apple just really isn't doing well in this space. We have Roku. They are the leader. In the U.S., they have approximately 40% market share. You then have Amazon, Google, and Apple holding second, third, and fourth place, respectively. What's going on is the market is unfolding largely based on price. Roku has positioned itself as the cheapest way for people to access Netflix and YouTube on a large television screen. How do we know that? Well, Roku recently filed for an IPO. And they disclose that Netflix and YouTube represent a very big portion of the number of hours of content consumed on their service. Well, look at what the company's doing. They're giving away their operating system to TV manufacturers for free. In fact, the company basically said at the end of the day, it's probably even costing them to be included in these TVs. It's probably one of a few reasons why Roku isn't profitable. Meanwhile, look at Apple's TV strategy. You have Apple TV priced nearly five times higher than Roku. According to my math, Apple TV is bringing in nearly six times more gross profit than Roku earns from its players. However, at a certain point, I think this entire discussion is grossly misleading. All of the attention seems to be placed on large screen televisions. You still have this ongoing debate about whether Apple should sell their own television set. Well, Apple is actually already selling TVs. They're called iPhones and iPads. Apple's actually selling 250 million televisions per year along those lines. These smaller screens are delivering an increasing amount of video content to consumers. Just look at what companies like Netflix are saying. Not only do I think this subject plays a very big role in why Apple said no to releasing its own television set, but it's a major factor in looking at the current Apple TV strategy, the one where Apple is selling its own standalone box that connects to an existing large screen television. It's becoming pretty clear that Apple has a very different goal for something like Apple TV than a company like Roku who is actually trying to make money placing ads against video content. 
Instead, Apple TV in its current form is a way for iOS users to turn large screen TVs into basically iOS accessories. Am I underselling the value found with a large screen television? Well, when you consider all the momentum that's moving to smaller screens, I don't think I am. The third theme that's found in TV has to do with content creators. In a battle for our time and attention, content creators with formidable content budgets are winning. There is a brain drain that is underway in Hollywood. Talent that's found both in front and behind the camera is moving to new players. Just look at how the stigma that was once attached to having a show on Netflix or Amazon has completely disappeared. This trend's only going to intensify moving forward. There are still some questions as to just how sustainable some of these streaming video business models are as independent entities. For example, when you look at Netflix, it's pretty clear pricing is going to have to increase eventually. Maybe that's not an issue. Maybe Netflix has enough content, enough attractive content that people really love that they could increase their prices over time and not have an issue. Meanwhile, Amazon, Apple, they're very different, where video does not have to stand alone. And there's really a completely different set of economics facing those initiatives. However, I don't think there's any question here that a company like Netflix has earned itself a certain amount of optionality in the space. They are providing a superior entertainment experience to more than 100 million people. I think that gives Netflix a lot of room to do things. A lot of things that maybe we aren't even considering just yet. Netflix likes to say that their competition it really isn't HBO. It's not Amazon. It's not YouTube. Instead, it's the clock. It's time. I think a lot of us can identify with that when we're thinking about when it's midnight, 1 a.m., and you have to choose. <laughs> do you go to sleep or do you watch that one more show? Do you watch that one more video on YouTube? All these players, they're battling for our time and attention. And well, we have a finite amount of that. <laughs> so they're going after things like sleep, work, transportation, commutes. It's a very interesting dynamic. The fourth product segment is the home. The smart home ended up being the surprise tech topic of 2016. I think a lot of this is due to the fascination with Amazon's Alexa digital voice assistant and, of course, the lineup of Echo speakers. If you notice, the narrative has changed a little bit in 2017. Mindshare is starting to get a little bit splintered. We have additional players on the scene. I think this is one reason why Apple unveiled its HomePod speaker at WWDC and not necessarily next week, although I think we're going to get a more official introduction next week. There's still a lot that we don't know yet about HomePod. The major themes in the smart home space include voice being positioned as an early user interface, companies basing their home strategy around core competencies, and the fact that I still think it's just too early to declare definite leaders and laggards. There's no question that the number of smart items available for the home is on the rise. Go on Twitter, go on Facebook, you're seeing more and more people talk about this, introducing stories about how they're installing this or that in their homes. It's still pretty niche. I think there's a couple of reasons for that. Price, 
questions over value, accessibility. I mean, things like that, I think, are still important, but there's no question that there is some early momentum found in the space. And there's been a question swirling around all of this activity. What is the best way to control these devices? Well, voice continues to grab much of the attention. People think that voice maybe is the interface for the home. We can maybe even say some think it's the new operating system for the home. You also have things like the automation capabilities found in Apple's HomeKit. I think that's very intriguing going forward as well. We are very likely going to have Apple talk about this next week with HomePod when the discussion is going to be probably a little bit more focused on Siri than it was at WWDC. I don't think voice will be the only way that you can control HomePod. I do think that some touch controls are going to exist. However, there's no question that if you're looking at the spectrum of Apple products, HomePod certainly relies the most on Siri. It is very easy to imagine a world where people can use Siri to control HomePod in its entirely. So it's a very big deal for Apple. And I think it just goes along this bigger trend that voice is being positioned as an early user interface in the home. When it comes to assessing how companies are approaching this space, most are just simply relying on their core competencies. You look at Google, Facebook, who is rumored to enter this space next year. They're going to look to monetize all of this data that they're capturing via microphones and cameras, and they'll monetize that through advertising. If you look at Amazon, I think the whole point in this is to position Alexa as a better shopping assistant that's going to drive Prime memberships, but it also is going to give Amazon a very crucial hold on commerce. In each one of those examples, you're going to have companies giving away their hardware at or below cost. Look at Amazon Echo, for example, and they're having significant sales at 50% off. So it's pretty clear what they're doing there. Meanwhile, look at Apple's strategy of HomePod. They're positioning this device as the best sounding speaker people have ever owned. I think this is going to give the company a very good shot at having the most profitable device in the smart home space. When you put all of these strategies side by side, this is the primary reason why I don't look at HomePod as competing directly with something like Amazon Echo. I think they are really trying to do different things. They're appealing to different customers. We will see over time if there is a more direct competition. There are rumors that Amazon would want to go closer towards HomePod in terms of really beefing up the hardware capability of their speakers. That could add a new dynamic to the market. But I think it's clear, everyone, they're trying to kind of rely on their strengths and hoping that maybe the market kind of moves towards them. However, based on how all of these companies are just rushing into the smart home space. It brings back memories or flashbacks to the early rush found with wearables. Many of these companies are going to be very disappointed in the smart home space. Another observation I've had is that as attention is being put on all of these stationary devices for the home, look what people aren't focusing on. Mobile devices. I think the smartphone remains the most valuable computer in our home. Is that really going to change in the near term? I don't think we should underestimate how a smartphone, how wearables impacts the smart home's future. Of course, I continue to think that 
a home won't really be a true smart home until Silicon Valley firms begin building their own housing. It'll happen one day. Maybe not next year or the year after, but it'll happen. So that is a closer look at the four major product segments that Apple's going to talk about next week. We're going to get new iPhones, new Apple Watches, a refreshed Apple TV, and a proper introduction to HomePod. So this is one reason why I think this upcoming event at Steve Jobs Theater, it has the ingredients for being the largest Apple product event in three years. In some areas, Apple's goal will be to improve upon existing themes in the market. I think if you look at the smartphone space and the streaming video space, that dynamic really is at play. However, if you look at smartwatches, I think what's happening here is Apple is taking a true leadership role. They are pushing the market forward. It's a new dynamic here. Usually you have Apple not being shy about kind of taking their time, maybe being classified as quote-unquote late to something. But with smartwatches, given how sales success is being really funneled right towards Apple, they're in a slightly different position. This is one reason why I think Apple Watch, I said the same thing last year, but I think Apple Watch continues to be maybe the most intriguing item. It contains a lot of unknown, even more so than, say, the iPhone market, smartphone market, and you're starting to see sales momentum. So this isn't something that's going to be niche. This is going to be something that I think hundreds of millions of people are going to be eventually involved in. That will conclude our formal discussion in today's episode. Looking out over the next week, things are going to be pretty busy. My game plan is that on Monday, September 11th, I'm going to publish my final thoughts heading into the event at Steve Jobs Theater. So we're going to go over all of my expectations for pricing, naming, how the Apple Watch line may be. I'm going to go over what I'm expecting, what I'm not expecting, what may be surprising, what may not be surprising. The reason why I think this is important is that expectations play a very big role in how we assess news and how we interpret something. So I think it's very important to go over what I'm expecting. That way I can actually say, well, what ended up being a surprise? What ended up being a shock or a disappointment? This is one reason why this episode looks at the big picture, and then on Monday, I'm going to look at the details. And then following the event, Wednesday, September 13th, and Thursday, September 14th, I will publish my full thoughts and observations on the event. And that includes attending the event, what was it like, what did I notice. I'm expecting there to be quite a bit to talk about. All of that analysis, so both my preview and my review, will be sent exclusively to above Avalon members in the format of daily emails. So there's going to be a daily email on Monday, Wednesday, and Thursday. And so if you are a member, keep an eye out on your inbox. You'll have a lot of information next week. If you're currently not an above Avalon member and you would like to get this analysis sent to you, become an Above Avalon member. You can head on over to AboveAvalon.com, go to the membership page, sign up is very easy. It's either $10 per month or $100 per year. 
The cornerstone of membership is access to a daily email all about Apple. Each email is approximately 2,000 words. We cover two to three stories. One aspect of these daily emails is going over all of my perspective and observations on product events. So this one coming up is a big one. I'm expecting it to be a very busy week. Members also have the option of joining the Above Avalon team in Slack. So that's where the archive exists. You can go back and look at previous daily emails. You can also chat with other Above Avalon members. And finally, as a programming note, because of my crazy travel schedule next week, there is not going to be an Above Avalon podcast episode. I will return the following week. The great thing about Apple product events is we always have so much to talk about afterwards. So I'm looking forward to it. With that, I will conclude today's episode. We will talk to each other later.